0: Are we ready to talk about community this morning? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, let's all stand, and we'll stand for the reading of Scripture. For millennia now, Christians have stood for the reading of God's Word as an act of reverence. When a king would enter his throne room, all of his subjects would stand. When we open the Bible, the king comes to speak. The king comes to declare himself over us. Waving a banner of love. And so we stand to greet him and receive from him. The passages will be up on the screens for you. I would invite you to, in a posture of openness and receptivity, invite the spirit now to, as Shua said, begin to commune with you. Have a conversation with your king as he comes to speak to you. John chapter 13. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And now St. Paul from the book of Romans. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. guys can grab your seats and let me pray for us. There's just absolutely nothing that can be done in a merely intellectual exercise of reading words on a page, giving thought to truth proposition, applying rationale apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. There is no greater importance in this generation of the church than that we, your people, would once again long for the flames and the winds of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, even now, open the soul of the one who's resisting, the one who stands steadfastly in their own plan, apart from surrender. Bless now. Pour out your love in our hearts, as St. Paul promised groan in your people with words and utterances that we cannot translate that are carried unto our father that his will would be done in our world as it is in heaven in our hearts as it is in our king's heart today and i pray merciful god bind us together as a family bind us together with a family of churches and bind us together through the generations i pray as i have prayed for 20 years now That you would use myself, my wife, Sophia and Nyla and Joby, my children, and our churches, Lighthouse, Taproot up in Seattle, Park Hill, Neighbors, and the churches that will be planted out from this community all across the globe. I pray that you would use our churches to touch every soul on this planet, in this generation, and a thousand generations to come. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're reaching the midway point this morning of an eight-week series entitled Future Church. This is a series done in collaboration with Park Hill and with Light Church up in Encinitas and a whole series of churches across the West Coast. Each week, what we're doing is we're addressing a major challenge that we as Jesus followers are facing in today's particular social climate. And each week, we are also casting an alternative vision for human flourishing, And that vision aligns us with the contours of God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And to align us, we are rolling out each of these eight weeks, eight specific practices, or what we're calling a rule of life following the ancient monastic practices. Not rules of life, but a rule of life. A set of beliefs and behaviors that align us as a community of people, making us one in the midst of our city. And these practices, they shape our souls and they shape our communities into counter-kingdom cultures right here in the midst of San Diego. And so today we're talking about a community of tight-knit relationships in a culture of individualism and tribalism. A community of tight-knit relationships in a culture of individualism and tribalism. Spirit, come and call all of us into this depth of intertwined, tight-knit relationship. In 1999, National Geographic fellow and researcher Dan Buettner, this is one of my favorite it's a very popular study. He launched an in-depth series of research and studies on the longest-lived communities on our planet. They studied the people groups that were living the longest. These came to be called the Blue Zone studies. I'm sure you're familiar with them very, very famous studies. They culminated in 2015. Butner and his colleagues, at that point, had distilled down nine contributing factors to these populations that seem to live just a little bit longer than the rest of the populations of planet Earth. And so I returned to the original research this last week. I was just on a, I want to live longer thing this last week. And I was reading this research and I was super surprised to discover that five, five, friends, five of the nine factors of communities that live longer than the rest of the people on this planet, five of those factors were communal in nature. They were community-based Now, let me give to you those five community-based factors. We won't go through all nine. Number one, Butner and his colleagues found that those people who have purpose, purpose, will live longer than those who have a loss of purpose. The Okinawans of Japan, they have something that they call, I'm going to butcher this, ikigai, ikijai, I don't know, but I'm butchering it, something along those lines. It basically translates into why we wake up in the morning. Why do I wake up in the morning, ikijai? Butner and his colleagues said that knowing your sense of purpose is worth up to seven years of extra life expectancy. Isn't that interesting? Now, here's the deal. We as modern Westerners, whenever we think of what is my purpose, we keep it in the individualized kind of personal perspective. What is my purpose in the world? For the Okinawans though, their purpose was intricately intertwined with their community. When they woke up and practiced Ikijai, they would say, what is our purpose together? When they woke up in the morning saying, what is my purpose? The next thought they would have is my community, the people that I am one with. Number two, and this is a good one. People lived longer on this planet by drinking wine at five, they called it. Some of us are like, thank God. Yes, I knew I was onto to something. <laughs> wine at five, wine at five. Okay, let's talk about this here for just a little bit. They found, they found that these cultures that drink moderate level, moderate, moderate SDSU kids, moderate. <laughs> Moderate levels of alcohol daily lived longer than those that tend to abstain completely. Once again, though, it wasn't the alcohol per se that was the key to their longevity. It was their community with alcohol involved in their community. Long-lived populations... Be they Mediterranean, Greek, the Okinawans, these populations that they were studying, they tend to enjoy a glass of wine or a pint of beer with friends and family. In fact, in these cultures, drinking alone was considered uncouth and inappropriate. Along similar lines, there was a French epidemiologist, Jean Ferrier. And he showed that even though the French diet includes saturated fats and heavy oils and vast amounts of cheese and wine, all the lactose intolerant people here are groaning right now. These foods that most Americans and nutritionists would consider extremely unhealthy, the French consistently have less heart disease than other cultures. Researchers have come to call this the French paradox. And they surmise that the intentional connected way of eating cheese and wine together as a community that the French practice actually mitigates against the heart disease caused by the individualized, high-paced, hamster-wheel societies that we live in here in the United States. Number three, third factor that was communal in nature, was what they just called belonging, belonging. A sense of belonging, and not just belonging to any tribe or group, but belonging to a faith-based community. Really important. All but five of the 263 centenarians that they interviewed along the way, they belonged to a faith-based community. And the denomination didn't really seem to matter. Their research showed that attending faith-based services four times per month added four to 14 years of life expectancy. You guys just added four years to your life expectancy today. Well done. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? Communal. The fourth factor they found was what they just entitled loved ones first, loved ones first. This was distilled down to what Butner described as care for the family. Successful centenarian, centenarian, somebody that lived over 100 years in the blue zones, they valued their family above the rest of the community and would not sacrifice their family for anything else. What this meant for these communities, what they, they kept their aging parents and grandparents nearby, in the home in particular. Uh, These communities all committed to a life partner, which Bütner discovered could lead to up to three years of life expectancy. And they all invested in their children and their grandchildren beyond and sacrificially with time and love. Caused them to live just a little bit longer than the rest of us. And then the fourth one, or excuse me, the fifth one, was what they just called the right tribe. The right tribe. It's a triggering word right now in this cultural moment, but let me explain it. The right tribe. The final factor, the right tribe. Bütner discovered that These communities, they they helped form the collective and the individual sense of well-being because where one or more were gathered, there would be this amplifying and this multiplying of the patterns of healthy behavior and the patterns of healthy belief via the tribe's influence. And so they discovered that the world's longest-lived people, they actually intentionally chose social circles that supported their healthy beliefs and behaviors. Again, the Okinawans were at the top of this list. Again, I'm going to butcher this. They created, these Okinawan women in particular, they create these groups called the Moyes. Moyes, maybe? Moyes. It's essentially groups of five women that commit to each other to support one another, care for one another, hold each other accountable for life. For life. Moyes. The right tribe so the longest-lived people intentionally form and commit their lives to tribes that favorably shape healthy mental and social behaviors. Which brings us to our cultural moment, 2021, sitting here in an elementary school in modern urban hubs like San Diego. How are we lining up with any of those five factors? I want to just contrast those five factors with the crisis that we find ourselves in culturally. Let's talk about purpose. The modern Westerner, that's you and I, we have been lured, and I would say duped, into thinking that the purpose of our life is always upward social mobility, establishing a career, accumulating wealth, competing and winning and holding power. And along the way, that sometimes means that we need to sacrifice others, which actually destroys community and eventually begins to warp our soul. It's why Jesus, our King, warned that you can gain the whole world of upward mobility and and climb the social hierarchy all the way to the top and lose your soul. In our culture, I know for myself, especially in my heavy, heavy drinking days, alcohol was the focus. It wasn't wasn't the friends that I was gonna go out and imbibe with. I wanted to get ripped. That was the whole point of my existence at that time in my life. Alcohol was and is, I would say, culturally used in America as a social numbing agent. You gotta get that drink in before you get to the club so that then you can have some fun. You're numbing out the social sensitivities that usually keep us in check. And all the stuff that goes on, that actually destroys real community. It's not a communal enhancement. What about belonging? Our social moment finds us untethered from a sense of belonging. We are adrift in a sea of loneliness. Our society is actually systematically deconstructing the very institutions that we once belonged to and found our deepest connection in, especially the church and especially the family. Now, here at Neighbors, we value family. We also value our singles. We have a vision of family that is around Jesus, Jesus' greater, broader family that draws people in. But what we're seeing in the cultural moment around us is an absolute attack on the nature of family, a destruction of family. I think it's why we have, I think it's part of the contributing factor to our anxiety. We don't know who we belong to. And we feel like we're in trouble if we declare that we do belong to somebody. Today's cultural tribes, talking about belonging to the right tribe, are toxic. They are not helpful. (laughs) Our tribes amplify our rage, our bigotry, our narrow-mindedness. The algorithms that keep us in our tribes keep us in an echo chamber while all we can hear is the rage of somebody else that agrees with us in that moment. And so... Our tribes are actually based on who we're against and who we hate. Have any of you noticed that? (laughs) What a toxic way to live. Our tribes are not about who we're for and who we love. So you take these cultural factors in contrast to the Blue Zone studies, and then you add the little kind of tiny overwhelming addition of global plague and quarantine, (laughs) and political schisms like we haven't seen since the Civil War, and glaring racial tensions that have always been there but just continue to bubble up with modern-day social media, and all of this has culminated in this anxious, lost, lonely epidemic. Literally, psychologists and psychologists, psychiatrists calling it an epidemic. And so ours is actually an anti-blue zone society. And it's making us sick, and it's in some cases literally killing us. So deep breath into your bellies, please. Let's just have a pastoral moment here. The Spirit's present. The kindness of Jesus flies his banner over you. It's pure love. He's a good shepherd. How are you? How's your soul? Are you lonely? Do you feel like you're maybe gaining the world, but you're losing your soul in this incessant pursuit of upward mobility and social ladder climbing? Let's be honest. Are you numbing with, be that Netflix or alcohol or whatever thing we can find to numb out some of the (sighs) that's going on? Are you disconnected? Uncertain? Are you scared? Is is there resignation right now? Is there despondency just kind of looming on the edge of your consciousness? Or maybe this morning as you take a deep breath in, you're like, nope, I'm swimming in despondency. (laughs) I feel resigned and hopeless. And the more pointed question for this moment, for the church, and for you individually, do you belong? Do you have a community of people, of friends and family That you can process all of the gnarliness that is life with. Is there, do you have a place of stability that you can rest upon in the chaos of all these emotions and events? Because this fourth session in this series, Future Church, this is the invitation to all of God's people. I am utterly persuaded alongside a whole cohort of leaders up and down the West Coast and across the nation that for such a time as this, you and I as Jesus followers in this cultural crisis, we have been given the good news of Jesus. We know now that there is light in this darkness. There is hope in this despair. There is life in the midst of all this death, but it's together, together as one. Every factor in these blue zone studies that contributed to human flourishing, they can all be traced not this wasn 't Butner's fault. this is just common grace in the human experience. they can all be traced directly to the teachings of the New Testament or the way of Jesus himself. and so the call to tight-knit loving relationships in this culture of radical individualism It is actually an invitation to you to become more fully you, to become more fully human, to live in such a way as God always intended with purpose and belonging, joy, laughter, life, together. This is the vision of our church, neighbor's church. Even this morning in pre-gathering prayer, these were the mental images that were put forth. We are praying to seed our city with these deeply intertwined communities and our campuses and our workplaces with these deeply intertwined communities that become eventually over the long haul. We don't just toss the word family around as if it's so easy. We all know family is gnarly. Family takes time. But over the long haul, we are praying to seed the city with multiple families, churches within the church, all throughout the city, up and down the West Coast, all around the the world. And it's beautiful. We're doing this concretely with Park Hill. We're doing this concretely with Benji up in Encinitas. We're doing the same series to seed our city with these tightly intertwined relational networks of family. And we are praying for the churches in our city, that the church would come alive to this awakening of unity, one with each other, seeding our entire city, seeding the entire globe. Jesus knew that we could not survive without each other. I realize that we have been trained by a Western ideal of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and hard work and you just make it happen. But maybe the greatest blessing is coming to realize I'm not making it happen. I can't do this alone. Jesus also knew that lost, lonely humanity would need literal guideposts, like little lamps along the dark streets that culture is walking upon need these guideposts to bring people into a different way of living with each other through these countercultural kingdom communities. It's why he commanded us, again, John chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Friends, to love Jesus is to obey him. They are one in the same thing. And to obey Jesus is to love Jesus' people in the same way that he loved us. There is probably not a more destructive lie in this age of deconstruction and cynicism and isolation than this one. And maybe you have uttered this from your own lips. I'm all about Jesus. I'm just not into the church. Now declarations like these, they usually have a tremendous amount of pain backing them up. These aren't just arrogant people deconstructing intellectually saying, the Bible doesn't make sense to me, therefore I'm not going to church. Most people that are saying I'm all about Jesus but I'm not into the church have been severely hurt by the church. And so ours is a moment of deep skepticism and mistrust because of wounds inflicted upon one another, wounds inflicted or incurred by one another within the communities of faith. David Brooks, who's by no means a Christian but somewhat considered a conservative columnist for the New York Times, said this, trust is the imprint left by experience. You guys, the younger generation is untrustful because the world has been untrustworthy. They've grown up in an era with low social capital, a lot of social decay, a lot of family breakdown, financial crisis, all the turmoil of the Trump era. So they look out at the world and draw the lessons. Their distrust is earned distrust. When faith in God is lost in a church, then the church falls apart. When faith in each other is lost, then the nation falls apart. To me, the crucial question of how we turn this around is, how can we rebuild trust? How can we rebuild communities where there are trusting relationships? Friends, despite the terrible breakdown of our society, Jesus' command in this room remains for us to love one another. His command is a call for us to relentlessly tirelessly, courageously rebuild trust with one another. One relationship at a time, one community night at a time, one dinner at a time, one cup of coffee at a time. Great, Henry Nouwen, in a letter, he was asked why we need the church. What's the big deal about the church, especially in a culture where everybody can be spiritual, that's very normal, but like committed religious attendance in a community seems at least pointless, and in our communities, in this cultural moment, seems wounding and damaging, And Nowen's reply was very important. He said this, All the mystics I have read, such as John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Thomas Akempis, Meister Eckhart, were all people deeply connected with the church. The church, speaking now to his questioner, as you say, the church can so clearly be in the way of God. Nowin acknowledged that. The church can get in the way of God, but it will never cease to be the way to God. This is the hard paradox of the religious life. When we give up the church completely, we will, end up by, we will end up losing God. In many ways, we are in the same situation Jesus was during his life. He strongly criticized the religious leaders of his time, but continued to say that people should listen to their words without following their example. While Jesus was very critical of the religious institutions of his time, he never suggested that people could do without them. And that is true even today. Now, the ginormous elephant sitting on our chests in this room. (laughs) There are immense challenges to loving one another as Jesus commanded. And these challenges are rooted in what sociologists and philosophers call the radical individualism of our day, this commitment to autonomy. Some of these challenges are our own choices. Let me list some of them the frenetic pace, that is the crazy pace that all of us are carrying this week and our over-busy schedules, these schedules are robbing us of time and energy to pour into and to be poured into via relationship. Now, in an urban hub like San Diego, transience is the norm. We don't stay in a place with a group of people long enough for anything of real substance to form. It's why at Neighbors, we literally humbly invite you To pray about God providing for you to stay in the city with us and not leave. To deal with wherever you're at on the political spectrum. To just live into a lifelong endeavor with a community. Pray about that at the very least. And don't let the transients rob you of something that God may want to give to you. We have been duped by the lie that our personal autonomy and our individual desires are the path to flourishing. And this is a lie that keeps us chasing the kind of a happiness and fulfillment fog, all based on self. All the while, while the deeper aspects of sacrifice and commitment and disadvantaging ourselves for the other is the pathway to true joy. And then we have the challenge of just good old-fashioned sin. Sin blinds us to the beauty of God's community. Sin keeps us at arm's length. Sin wounds us. Sin wounds others through us. And as the old cliche goes, hurt people hurt people. I cannot tell you how many of God's people have said to me over these 20 years, including myself, many a time, with many a mentor and in prayer, I don't feel safe. And so in our fear and in our hurt, we wall off, we protect, we posture, we guard. And then there's this final piece that we're going to be developing much more in 2022, Satan. This malevolent being, he hates God's community. Satan's agenda is to segregate, to separate, to isolate, and to destroy community. And so over and over and over, the apostles were correcting and commanding our first Christian brothers and sisters to resist all these forces. It's why Paul exhorted the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4 to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul would even call out people in his letters by name. Philippians chapter four, verse two, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Gosh, can you imagine being the the people that are remembered through the annals of history as the two people that just couldn't get along? (laughs) Not for us. Here's, Here's the call. Here is the call. Four primary challenges or calls for us as we get ready to come to communion this morning. Four calls for you. Four challenges for us to to shape an alternative vision aligned with the contours of God's kingdom right here in the city of San Diego. Number one, we are to pursue the ideal while embracing the reality. We are to pursue the perfect ideal while embracing the imperfect reality. With Paul, we are to agree and obey. We are to make every effort to live together as we will be living together in the kingdom, even though we will fail and stumble and stub each other's toes and sometimes downright sucker punch each other in the face. We are still supposed to pursue the ideal at all costs and never stop. True Christian community is messy We will not, Lord, please no, sell you a bill of goods. Come join your community group. They're all gonna love you perfectly and agree with you, and everything's gonna be amazing. And every community night, angels are gonna be sitting right next to you, and the heavens are gonna break open, and you're gonna sense the Holy Spirit, and everybody's gonna just hug and love, and it's gonna be, you're gonna be best friends forever. And we're gonna be family as the new, as our, this Western moment in the church, everybody wants to call everybody family without actually acting like family. How many of you have perfect families where you've never had any conflict in your family? Any issues? <clears throat> huh. When we expect the ideal, whether you've been sold it by some visionary pastor that's just lying straight through his teeth, community is amazing, it's so awesome, go, it's going to be so great, you're going to love every bit of it all the time. Or, or, or you have this envisionment of what community could be and should be in your mind and then you place that expectation on that community and then you walk into it and you experience reality, which is some nights are awkward, some nights are super boring. That person super annoys you and right now in this political moment, this racial moment, this sexual moment, I think I disagree with that person. Oh my gosh, what do I do about that? (laughs) When we expect the ideal, and reality is what we experience, we grow frustrated or cynical. But if we're pursuing the ideal, if we know that our posture is, I'm not going to give up, I'm going to keep pursuing the ideal in my own responsibility, that I'm going to embrace the reality that's around me, then over time, true families will be formed. True families will be formed where we know each other, love each other, care for each other, stub each other's toes, forgive each other, learn how to fight with each other, learn how to forgive each other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, most important book on community, probably ever written in the last 500 years, Life Together. Everybody needs to read this book. He said this, every human wish dream, that's our expectation, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves the dream of community more than the community itself, becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God and himself accordingly. Pursue the ideal but embrace, with a hug and a kiss, the reality of broken human community. Number two, this means that we have to take personal, individual responsibility for our community. We have to take the impetus of responsibility. We are responsible for community, the formation of community, how we live in a community, how we embrace community, how we pursue the ideal. If we are pursuing the ideal while embracing the reality, this means that we are the ones taking the initiative. And I would say that entitlement breaks down community. This means that when we begin to approach community, we don't approach it um, expecting the group to come to us. We go to them. Our mentality is, and yes, this is hard work. Yes, this is a bummer. Yes, I wish the church would be better about welcoming and thinking and being forecasting and meeting needs. I wish, I wish, I wish I could do better at that. But we shift, we shift the perspective when we say, I'm going to take responsibility, meaning I will be the one that pursues. I'm going to endure the awkward moment of meeting a new group. I'm going to sit through the boring nights and rally the troops. So boring, but we're together. I'm going to be the one that reaches out. I'm going to, one, I'm going to be the one that invites to lunches. I'm going to be the one that pays for the coffees. I'm going to be the one that says, hey, can I mentor you in my brokenness? Can I lead you? we take personal responsibility. We personally are practicing and modeling, regardless, friends, of how the group responds. We model no matter what, pursuing the ideal by sacrificially serving, by absorbing wrong and forgiving, and staying vulnerable and honest with deep, deep selfless humility. So we take personal responsibility and we press in, and I will tell you that we become the change agent and the catalyst for that family. I don't want to embarrass her, but I was having a conversation with my 15-year-old daughter who was talking about the nature of community. She's a church pastor's kid. She's been raised in the church, and she was saying this very thing. I'm realizing that I, I'm going to need to be the one that steps in, stays committed, pursues the idea. She's saying all these things. I'm just like, brilliant. Yes, that's the answer. Number three, number three. Third call to us for this next season, for the rest of the life of our church. I want to emphasize this. Practice, 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 practice. The one another's, over and 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 over. In case you didn't get it, we need to keep practicing over and over and over. The one another's. What are the one another's? The one another's are derived from the Greek word a Very common word in the New Testament. Essentially translates one another, each other, mutually or reciprocally, reciprocity. It occurs about 100 times in the New Testament and approximately, almost 60, 59 of those occurrences of the one another verbiage. There are specific commands that teach the Christian community of how to relate to each other and how not to relate to one another. And obedience to those commands is the basis for all true Christian community. Okay, I've got a ton of slides here. So if you guys want to take pictures of this, I'm going to rip through this. You've never heard me talk this fast. Get your phones out. Here we go. The one another's. Max, do you have those? Ready? One, two, three, go. Be devoted, to, blah, blah, blah. be devoted to one another. honor one another, above yourselves, live in harmony with one another. Think of a, a symphony. Build up one another. be like minded towards. be like-minded towards one another. Oh, be like-minded towards one another. Oh, what is happening right now? Paul, have you lost your mind? No, be like-minded towards one another. Accept one another. Oh, I don't like the way that person thinks. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive, 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 forgive one another. In this day of such horrific wounding across all sorts of cultural, social, relational, familial lines, forgive. Be patient with one another. Speak the truth in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Today, when Shua closes out with our benediction, we don't just do that because it's funny and awkward. Paul literally commands us to sing to each other, to look into each other's eyes and make it feel really so that we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. There's a fun word for us. Submit to one another. Consider others better than yourselves. Look to the interests of another. Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Oh my gosh, there's more. <laughs> Encourage one another, exhort one another, stir up one another to love and good works, show hospitality to one another, employ the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Pray for one another. Pray for one another. I think that this may be the healing balm of the church in this day and age. Start praying for the person that you disagree with, has hurt you. Uh, just pray for them, pray for them daily. And then confess and be aware of your own faults. Friends, I believe if, if the Christian communities would practice like five of these consistently, we would change the world. I think San Diego would become an epicenter of revival if we could get like three of these for a month straight. <laughs> Again, Brooks, he's always so insightful. He said, culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. So pursue the ideal, embrace the reality. Take personal responsibility, and then you start practicing, 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 practicing this list over and over and over. And then finally, number four, and we're going to close for our morning, commit and don't quit. How's that for coaches' encouragement? Come on, team, commit and don't quit. Commit and don't quit. Modern Christians, I believe, need to experience two types of conversion. The first is to Jesus, which most of us in this room have converted to. We've radically committed to Jesus as our center of everything. The second, I believe, is a conversion to Jesus's community. What I mean by that is we literally need to have our belief structures that culture has handed us from this individualized, hyper-expressive, radical humanism that we live in. We need to be converted from that into the economy of God's kingdom in relationship one unto another. And it's such a radical shift that it looks like literal conversion of sorts we we begin to frame up our relationships with each other in the framework of covenant. Covenant is a big bible word. It basically means we will not quit no matter what and we won't leave no matter what. We will stay no matter what. Now of course I'm not addressing severely abusive situations. There are abusive situations. I think that word gets tossed around a bit lightly these days. But I know without question and have endured in my own life spiritual abuse. What I am addressing though is that when community gets hard or divisive or awkward or boring, we take personal responsibility to pursue the ideal and embrace the reality. We practice the one another's and we say, I have covenanted in my soul to this community of people. It's it's a commitment. What's amazing about covenant commitment when we do this ourselves is that the more intense the commitment, the greater the intimacy is produced, the greater the unity. Have you ever been around that couple that's been married for like 60 years and they never gave up on the covenant? like their intimacy, their unity is just so profound. You wanna know how they got there? A lot of stubbing each other's toes, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of pain, a lot of working through over a lot of time, a lot of issues, and they never quit. They never gave up. This is the call to the church for our souls. What you long for the most will require this. One psychologist put it this way, intimacy only resides in the safety of commitment. This means that even if everybody else in the group bails out on you, you're practicing the ideal. You're pursuing it and embracing the reality, saying, no, I'm, I'm covenanted, I'm committed. Is this terrifying? Are some of us right now just like, Wah! yes, of course, of course. I am an introvert of introverts. This teaching terrifies me. <laughs> Is it hard? It is unbelievably hard. But committing this way and not quitting and taking personal responsibility, we become like these little flames that are catalysts for true community in your personal life and around you. And yes, this is what it will call for.